The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Listen, we have some really, really special guests today that we want to give an amazing welcome to. And I, uh, I was trying to think about how to describe it. A pastor and his wife, where this, this guy, you would see pictures of him in churches all over Ukraine. I think it would be like if you were a, if you're a Baylor Bear, it'd be like Grant Taft walking in the room or a Texas Longhorn, uh, Daryl Royal or a, a Texas A&M Aggie, R.C. Slocum, or, uh, or if you're a tech, like, a, like a, if Mike Leach were still alive, him coming in. You know the sort of welcome that you would give these people. And today, along with their family, we have Pavel and Luba Marchuk here. Pavel and Luba, would y'all and your family, would you stand? Let's welcome them. We, we absolutely love the Marchukes. They're, some of their kids have been here with us, and they are, uh, for those of you who might not know, they have been serving for over 30 years in Bilitserkva, Ukraine, uh, and Pavel has planted several churches, leads pastors' conferences for hundreds of pastors, and they're with us for the next few weeks, and in a few weeks, Pavel will be up sharing with us. It will be an incredible treat for us. We, we praise God for you. Slava Bo. We love you. Well, we are going to look in the text today. If you want to open to Matthew chapter 9, this is our last subject in a series. Dave, next week we'll kind of uh, conclude the series as we've been in the disciplines, talking about the spiritual disciplines as a means God uses for us to be formed by Jesus. And today we're going to talk about commission and the opportunity we have to be Christ sharers in the world. And it excites me to think about because of the power of an invite, the really simple step we'll look toward at the end. When you think about the power of an invite, it's really amazing. For many of you, many years ago, someone invited you to dinner and now you're married to them. For all of us really, probably somebody invited someone else to dinner and then they became our parents. Invites throughout history have changed the world. When I, when I was 12 years old, a guy named Steve invited me to church. And he did that because the compassion of Christ was in him, and he saw me. I was a, just an angry kid headed into my teenage years, and he had compassion because I did not know my way. I was like a sheep without a shepherd. And it would be about four years before I trusted Christ, but that invite from Steve was that first step that got me to start going back to church and thinking about the gospel. And I don't know where my life would be if Steve had not invited me. Several years later, Steve was doing a ministry project and I was in my mid-20s and he asked me to come help him. And a family member said, you know, all those years, Steve must have seen something in you. You ought to ask him what it was. So I said, hey, Steve, what was it all those years that this is what a family member said, right? That what was it that you saw in me? And he just kind of laughed. He said, oh, it was need. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. That's really just warmed my heart. He said, no, you, you were like a sheep without a shepherd. But Chase, I tell you, I saw something in Jesus that you needed. And I still see it today. And you and I still need it today. 
And that's really where our hope is. It's not in us, it's in him. I'm so grateful for this guy who invited me. And and at the end of our service today, we're going to talk about how we can invite people to this compassionate Christ. We're going to look in Matthew 9, 36 through 38. I'm going to read verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. I thought that was birds flying over. Sounds like we've got an alarm. The birds are gone, praise God. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. God, we ask for that today, that among us in this room, among other churches in Temple and Belton, among the churches in Ukraine and Rwanda, God, would you raise up laborers? The harvest is still plentiful. The workers are still few. God, would we see the crowds in their confusion and would we see our Christ in his compassion and would you call us and help us to step into commission? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus has compassion on these people, and Jesus has compassion on these people because when the great heart of Christ sees the great need of people, he gives a great call for his disciples to meet the need and to magnify his name. These people are confused, and so we're going to talk about the confusion of the crowds this morning. These words say harassed and helpless. They're words that sound really similar in the Greek. It's eskulminu and eriminu. Eskulminu is, is harassed. It's literally that they're flayed, that their skin is torn. They're like sheep who've lost their way. They're without a shepherd, so they've gotten into thorns and their legs have been torn, their wool is tearing apart. Maybe they've been chased after by wolves or wild dogs. They're in a bad situation. They're not just harassed, they're helpless. The word is thrown down or to be jerked down or to be tossed about. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And that is a problem because they should not have been sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, if they don't have a shepherd, will get like these people were, but they should have had shepherds. There were religious leaders called Sadducees and Pharisees, and even in the Roman Empire, there was a king named Herod. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, instead of shepherding the people, they had put their hope in their moral superiority, their racial purity, their political advocacy, hoping to overthrow the corrupt Roman government. The Herodians 
sought to gain favor with Rome. They overlooked sin in the empire. They got in bed with Roman culture. They wanted to keep their money and their power. They had abdicated their responsibility, both Sadducee and Pharisee and Herodian, to be the shepherds like God's prophets were, to be the shepherds like the few great kings of Israel were. And I think Matthew, when he says they were like sheep without a shepherd, and when Jesus had compassion and told his disciples these people are like sheep without a shepherd, I think they're evoking something in the mind of the Israelites from about 700 years before Christ came to earth. There was a problem with the shepherds. It's both in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. I'd like us to look at Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 to see a couple of ways the shepherds then, 700 years before the birth of Christ, the shepherds when Christ was there and even the shepherds today are failing the sheep. Ezekiel 34, 1 says, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 2, you'll see it on the screen. It says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should you not feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My Sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered. They were flayed, harassed. They were helpless because the shepherds gave harsh language but no help. There's another way the shepherds failed. Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 23. Look in verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hope. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of God, it will be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. You've heard it. Surely God won't be bothered by what you're doing. Surely he'll be okay with this. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and has listened? See, the confusion of the people in Ezekiel's day and in in Jeremiah's day and in the days that Christ was on earth, it was deeply intertwined with the fact that the shepherds had not appropriately had compassion and shepherded the people. In their culture and in our own, there's some ugly things to see. And before we talk about compassion and what it is, I want to talk just for a moment about what it's not. Now hear me. When I say what I'm about to say, I'm not talking about the lost, the vulnerable, those who are 
bound up in sin, they are like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. We're talking about people who claim to be the shepherds. And like those of Ezekiel, they either harshly tell the truth or like those of Jeremiah, they kindly tell lies. We see in culture, we've seen it in our own community. It's the guy who's got a following he wants to keep and he uses sharp words. He'll tell you the word of God is true. He'll tell you it's inerrant and he's the shepherd who's going to guide the people. His words for the city might be harsh. His words for culture might be harsh. And then you find out he's not just harsh in church, he's harsh at home. He's harsh with his people. And all of a sudden, the guy's abandoning family and abandoning faith. We've seen it over and over again. These shepherds who aren't feeding the sheep, and then there are those who kindly tell lies in our own community. There are people, not those who are struggling, but those who say, I'm a shepherd. And in their teaching, they abandon a biblical sexual ethic, even one who pastored as a man and now in another state, pastoring, identifying as a woman. And it sounds like compassion, but it's not. Again, we're not talking about lost, the vulnerable. We're talking about people who have declared themselves to be shepherds, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They tear the sheep apart. Speaking a lie kindly or speaking a truth harshly neither expresses the compassion of Christ. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians weren't doing it in this day. And we've got to do it. We've got to show the compassion of Christ to the crowds that are confused. Why? I think because as the great theologian Johnny Cash says, there's no lonelier place on earth for a man to be than separated from God. And neither of these sorts of shepherds will help people come back to God. They'll just leave them separated. Whether we look at the world and kindly lie, speaking nothing of the problem of sin, or whether we trade the compassion of Christ for contempt for the crowd, we miss the mark. So in the age in which we live, we've got to live lives of kindness and clarity. We've got to speak words of truth and gentleness because when the great heart of Christ sees the great need of humanity, he gives a great call to his people to meet the need and magnify his name because Jesus is the good shepherd. What are you saying, Chase? We ought to look to you, to Dave, to Tim. My goodness, no, look to Jesus. Because to whatever degree we or anyone else magnify Jesus and, and look to the word for our wisdom and the spirit to our empowerment, in that we succeed and to the degree that we do not, we fail. Christ is the compassionate one. Our only hope is Jesus. Yes, we trust the word, but Jesus is the shepherd the people need. He is the compassionate one. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassion never comes to an end. His mercies are new every morning. Great 
is his faithfulness. The compassion of Christ, his great heart, sees the confusion of the crowd, their great need. And so he says to his people this great call, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Now we see his compassion in Matthew chapter nine. We see his compassion throughout the gospels. We see his compassion in the Old Testament when Isaiah describes this Christ. We see it clearer than ever when he's dying for the sins of the people. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our grief. He's not just going to look at the confused crowd and look with empathy at their grief. He will bear it. He's not just going to look at their sorrow and go, oh, that's a shame. He will bear it. He has borne our grief. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He didn't just look with sadness at their sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Then listen to this, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What does it mean when his soul makes an offering for sin? See, Israel was supposed to, in the Old Testament, come not just with a lamb, but with a lamb that was given with a pure heart from the deepest parts of who they are as a sacrifice for their sins, then it would happen over and over and over, and then John the Baptist is preaching. He's got a lot of people listening to him preach repentance. Two of the guys that are there are guys named John and Andrew, and then John says, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God. He's not a Lamb of man. He's the Lamb of God, and his offering, his sacrifice, will take away the sins of the world. We see his compassion when his soul makes an offering for sin. Now, you could be tempted to think about the compassion of Christ and do one of two things. You could be tempted to go, let's just meet needs. Let's not say anything. People are offended by the exclusivity of the gospel, or you could go, hey, let's not worry about needs. Let's just preach the word. But then the New Testament knows of no such Christianity that's only about word and not about deed. It knows of no such Christianity that's only about deed and not about word. The Apostle Paul is taking up an offering for the poor. And he's saying he's not ashamed of the gospel. Well, yeah, what about Priscilla and Aquila? They made people tense. They did make people tense, and they taught the truth about who God is. What about Peter and John? They healed that lame guy. They were just helping him out. But it was in the name of Jesus that they said, rise up and walk. And they couldn't help but speaking about what they've seen and heard. Now, hear me. The stronger the bridges of our relationships, the heavier the truth we can drive across them. But truth spoken in unconditional love was not something the apostles were ever ashamed of, even as they became Jews to the Jews and like Greeks to the Greeks. Our, our staff about 11 years ago, we were in New York City visiting 
the city, learning from churches and authors and pastors. And one of the guys that we heard from was a guy named J.R. Vassar. And J.R. Vassar was talking about the ministry of word or deed. And somehow the question came up of whether one was more important than the other or why did it have to be both? And I appreciated this. I thought it was very insightful. He said, well, if you just do deed and you don't tell people why you're doing it, they won't know that Christ is the power behind what you do. And they'll just think, well, that's a good person. I could never be like them. And they'll be bound up in hopelessness. And if you just speak the word, but your life doesn't match your message, if the compassion of Christ through you doesn't match the message of compassion that you speak, well, then your life will look inauthentic. Your life is the apologetic for your message. So we show the compassion of Christ. As as I was thinking about the compassion of Christ this week, one of our pastors said, "Have have you considered the adulterous woman? It's this great picture of what the compassion of Jesus looks like. And when you consider this text in John 8, there are four things that you can see You know the story, but let's remember, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he began to teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in his midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. What do you say? Now, you, you get the ugliness of this. They're trying to set Jesus up, but they've set this woman up. She's been caught in the act. I was never great at math, but last time I checked, adultery takes two people. And there's not a man around. They didn't bring him. They just want to harm her. And they're ready to trap Jesus or kill this woman for her sin. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him and Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I have no idea what he wrote. They continued to ask him and he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There are four things that we can see about Christ-like compassion. Number one, Christ-like compassion involves empathy that sees, seeks to understand, and hopes to help meet a need. Jesus knew more about this woman than any of the men who were condemning her. He knew her pain, he knew her fear, he knew her sin, he knew her situation, he knew that she was trapped, and he looked with compassion at her. He is the one who has the right to judge her sins. He understood who she was, he understood how she got there, and he saw her as harassed and helpless. 
He understood the situation and he sought to meet her need. Christ-like compassion does that. Christ-like compassion often involves meeting a spiritual need in order to share, a physical need in order to share a spiritual reality. This woman had a physical need and her physical need was to not be stoned to death that day. That's what was going to happen. And Jesus protected her from death by his wisdom and by his words. He was an advocate for her life. Christ-like compassion often involves meeting physical needs to express spiritual realities. Christ-like compassion is costly. What does it look like to get involved in the lives of the broken and vulnerable? See, Jesus' response to the Pharisees saves her life, but these sort of responses to the Pharisees are what will lead to him dying for her sins so that she doesn't have to. Christ-like compassion is costly. And then Christ-like compassion is unashamed of its source. True Christ-like compassion is rooted in the reality of God and his word. Woman, where are they? Is no one here to condemn you? No one, Lord. And he says, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. Christ-like compassion has the intent of life being changed. See, when we consider what commission we might have, we've got to know that just like in the first century, there are the crowds and their confusion, and there's the Christ and his compassion, and his compassion would move in us to be the call to have a commission because when the great heart of Christ sees the great need of humanity, he gives a great call to his people to meet the need and to magnify his name. So how do we do that? How do we be used by God? Well, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So there are four things that we can do. And the first is to pray. It's to pray. Can you imagine praying a prayer with a lot of confidence God is going to answer? I think we can have a lot of confidence God's going to answer this. The picture is this. There's a harvest field and, and it needs to be harvested, but there aren't enough laborers. And Jesus is in effect saying, ask my dad to send out laborers in the harvest. So literally, you and I can sincerely pray, Father God, Jesus asks us to pray for this. And I think he'll answer it. I believe he'll answer it, but we shouldn't miss this. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, for the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, and so they pray. And you imagine you're Peter or John or Andrew or Thomas, and they're going, God, would you send out laborers? Would you send out laborers? Would you send out laborers? And then you wake up the next morning, and you're in Matthew chapter 10, and Jesus calls them to himself and sends them out. He says, you're the answer to this prayer that you have just prayed. And in chapter 10, he sends out the apostles, and he tells them this. He says, go in confidence. I'm going to give you power. You can go in confidence because I'm with you. 
And he tells them that persecution is going to come. It's going to be difficult when you go to reap the harvest. But in the midst of going out in confidence, in the midst of persecution coming, he says, do not be afraid. Have no fear. And then he tells them, your rewards are going to be great when you enter in this commission. So we pray, and then there's some other things that we can do that I would love for us to consider. And sometimes we talk about these as run steps and walk steps and crawl steps. You know, Isaiah 40, 31 says this, that those who wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength. They'll mount up like the wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. The commission is a long obedience in the same direction. And so we've got opportunities to run or to walk or to crawl because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I want to tell you, I think the crawl step can make such a big impact, but we'll get there in a few minutes. Well, what does it look like? What's the run step? What's the big step? Well, there's globally and locally, we could consider these in this commission to make disciples, right? That's what Jesus calls us to do. TBC exists to make disciples for the glory, for the glory of God. So God might call you as a single or as a family to take the gospel to the least reached peoples on the place of the earth. For the last 50 years, God has been raising up people in this body to take the gospel to the nations and the need is great. The harvest is still plentiful. Researchers estimate there are 3.3 billion people with little or no access to the gospel on the planet today. Now I want us to think about what 3.3 Billion is like just to consider the magnitude of lostness. One million seconds is 11 days, okay? One billion seconds is 31.5 years. So how many of you are 30 or under? You raise your hand? This means you raise your hands. Yeah. You've not lived a billion seconds. So to live three billion seconds, again, a million seconds is 11 days, three billion seconds, that's 95 years. So 3.3 billion people, my goodness, that is a lot of people with little or no access to the gospel. These same researchers estimate that we need 100,000 new missionaries to go out. So God just might call your family to go out. I emailed several TBC missionaries single or married and ask, hey, from the time you said we're going to go to the nations until you actually were getting on a plane, how long was that? They said nine years, five years, seven years, three years. One said two years. So if you ask when's the best time to start thinking about missions, my answer is nine years ago. But the next best time is right now. God might use your family to be launched from this place to take the gospel to the nations. Now, God might also use you locally, and there are great opportunities to serve in any of our ministries here, to serve with CEF and Good News Clubs or FCA or Hope Pregnancy Center or Discipleship Unlimited or Foster Love or Feed My Sheep, Churches Touching Lives for Christ, Helping Hands, so many more partner ministries that you would give your time 
to share the love of Jesus and the truth about Jesus through ministering with one of our partners. That's a run step, but there's also a walk step. Could you share the gospel with a friend? You go, there's no way I could share the gospel with a friend, except that you could. How many of you think you could share your testimony, what Jesus has done in you, poorly and imperfectly? Any, anyone? See, God has been using poorly shared, imperfect testimonies to change lives for the last 2,000 years. And if you want a tool to share the gospel, there are some great ones. If you go on YouTube and just... Just type in the three circles. You get a little three-minute video. You could just take the video to a friend or you could learn to share it. Or if you typed in one verse evangelism, some great tools. God might use you to share the gospel with people in your life right now that are waiting to hear and ready to trust Him. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. There's a guy named Mac Stiles, and Mac was a guy that loved to share the gospel with university students. He found himself in the Middle East on a university campus sharing the gospel. Uh, a pastor went to preach at his church, and he was talking with Mac, who was doing ministry with these students, and a student came up named Stephen. He said, hey, Stephen, how are you doing? He was from the region. He said, can you tell me how you came to know Christ? And Stephen said, yeah, Mac became my friend, shared the gospel with me. I trusted Christ. He invited me to church, and now I'm growing in Christ. After he's done talking to Stephen, a guy named David walks up, and David, how'd you come to know Christ? And he goes, well, Mac became my friend, shared Christ with me. I trusted Christ. He invited me to church, and now I'm growing in Christ. And then a guy named Paul came up, and he, he said, hey, Paul, let me guess, Mac shared Christ with you? And he said, no, Stephen and David did. <laughs> and they invited me to church, and now I'm growing in Christ, and I've got some friends I'm going to start inviting. God can use you to share the gospel with friends. You are the means God has chosen to make disciples of the nations. And then there's a, a crawl step. And maybe that crawl step is that you would just pray that God would give you a heart of compassion for the vulnerable in our city and the world. Maybe when you look at the crowds, you feel contempt and you just know, hey, that's not, like that's broken in me just like there's brokenness in them. God, would you give me compassion? Would you change my heart? But I'm going to tell you about another crawl step that I am really, really excited about. And it's a step that comes when we look at those around us, not as a problem to be solved, but as people to be seen who need Jesus. And it's just the power of an invite. Now, I'll tell you, I told you a little bit about the power of an invite, but God has been stirring in me about how great an invite can be become for about a year, and it started really with my son Jeb. Uh, my son Jeb was getting baptized, and he asked me one evening, he said, Dad, can I invite some, some friends to my baptism? And I said, yeah, you can invite your friends to baptism. That's great. And I'm thinking he's going to go to school, tell his friends, invite them, and maybe some of them will come. And I see him that night in our little back room. He's at a table, and he's just, he's writing on a three-by-five. And I said, what are you making? He said, I'm making an invite. And I said, oh, you don't have to make an invite. You can just tell him. And he looked at me and he goes, no, I'm making invites, Dad. In a way that I thought, I better not get in the way of this, right? <laughs> but I was thinking about how long it would take him to write. And I said, how, how many are you making? And uh, he said, about 30 or 35. And I know how fast he writes. And I thought, well, that'll take three months, right? <laughs> so we got on the computer, made some invites, and he took them. And some of his friends from TBC, some not from TBC, 
six of them came to his baptism. And three of his teachers who are not from our church came to his baptism. And one of them said, hey, do you know he invites people to your church all the time? I said, no, I really didn't. Yeah, he did. I thought it was because he liked the preaching. He said, no, that's not it, Dad. But a few days later, he had gone to school, and I, and I, I found just this little three-by-five card. So I put it in my office to pray for Jeb as he invites people. On the back, it says, hello, lunch table. <laughs> and on the front, it says, you have been invited to a scavenger hunt at TBC uh, it will be between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. Dinner will be provided. See you there, Jeb. That just warmed my heart, encouraged me. I love to see it. But then a couple of weeks ago, I got a picture of what it could look like by meeting an, another young man who was in firefighter school. His name is Gavin. Gavin was a teenager from Rogers, and Sarah and Joe Jarlick invited him to Temple Bible Church. And he did what you do when people invite you to church. He said, no. <laughs> But they kept inviting him, and so Gavin came, and he made some friends, and this group of young men that graduated this last year befriended him. He got in their G group on Wednesday night, heard the gospel uh, clearly proclaimed, and saw it changing their lives, and Gavin trusted Christ. He got baptized a couple of years ago, and now Gavin is serving in our junior high ministry, helping junior high boys know Christ, because someone invited him to church. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We, we looked up how many people have moved to Temple and Belton. We're not counting Westphalia, Troy, Academy, Little River, just Temple and Belton. How many new families or singles you think have come into TBC since January 2022? We wondered, and TJ looked that up for us, just of those who've reported there are 9,100 new families in our community since January of 2022. Now, 82% of unchurched people say they go to church if invited by a friend. And seven of those unchurched people are in each of your circles statistically. 82% would say they'd come if invited by a friend. That's 5.74 people. Now, I'm not worried about us getting the .74 here, but if we could all get those five here. Could you just imagine that? Now, this study also said that 6% of people will walk into a church if they're not church by their own initiative. 2% come because the church has a program they like. 7% come because they like the pastor. That one kind of hurt my feelings, right? 82% of unchurched people say, if a friend invited me, I would come, but only 2% of people who go to church invite someone in a given year. Well, what's the power of an invite? You've heard Gavin's story, you've heard my story, but as I thought about this, I was driven to the Word. And what I saw was the power of an invite. And I just did a very brief study in a very short section of Scripture. But what I saw was John the Baptist invited his friends, John and Andrew, to behold the Lamb of God. And they did. And they became his friends and his followers. John, a writer of a great portion of the New Testament. And then Philip invited his friend Nathaniel. Hey, I think I've 
found the Messiah. And Nathanael said, no way. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And this guy who certainly wouldn't come and follow came and followed. And then John and Andrew, John invited his brother James, and then Andrew invited his brother Peter. Well, of all the disciples, like Peter was just not cut out. By the time Peter was seven, it would have been clear that he wasn't going to make it in rabbinical school, and so he started fishing with his dad. He was loudmouthed and foulmouthed. He's not coming. And if he does, what's God going to do with him? But it was three years later, empowered by a risen Jesus, that Peter stood up and proclaimed a simple gospel message and 3,000 people trusted Christ. Just, just a couple of questions and then, then an opportunity. Who might God encourage you to invite to church that he might do in them what he's done in you? He might save them like he saved you. He might help them to grow like he's helped you to grow. And then who might you invite that God might just use to change the world? It might be the person you think is least likely to show up and certainly God would never use. Well, we would like to make this as easy as possible for you. In five weeks, we start an Advent series. You know, Christmas, like Easter, is one of these times when people who never come to church might just come to church. And our Advent series, this might shock you, but it's called You're Invited. And as you, as you walk out today... Our welcome team is going to be standing right outside these doors with stacks of four or five of these little cards that look like Christmas cards. And they say, you're invited on the front. Good news of great joy. And that's what we want to invite people to. Good news of great joy that's only found in Jesus Christ. And on the back, it just tells when our Advent service times are, when our Christmas Eve services are. Maybe you'd take one of these and put it in your place of business so that people can see it. Maybe they're neighbors or friends that you could go and hand them a personal invite. Maybe it's to, to Sunday morning, but maybe it's to your small group, or maybe it's to the launch pad, or maybe it's to overflow, or maybe it's to women's ministry. Who might God just be waiting to change the world through and he's going to use your invite to do it? Could I, could I just pray for us? God, we thank you that you can use something like a piece of paper and a very ordinary person. An invite to a friend to utterly change someone's life. And so God, would you, would you bring people to mind that need to know you in our lives and give us courage to invite them to good news and great joy in Jesus? God, there might be a single or a couple in this room that you're going to raise up and we're going to pray for and support and send to go to some of these least reached peoples. People in this room, you're calling to serve with our partners, to serve in our Sunday morning or weekday ministries. God, you're a great God with a great heart full of compassion for the crowds. 
And the crowds are still confused. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So God, would you help us to embrace this call of commission you've given us? The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. God, could that not be true at Temple Bible Church? Could the laborers be many in our city and in the world that we might see Jesus magnified and the harvest come in? Would you work in us for it, God? We're hopeless without you, but nothing's too difficult for you. So would you use the power of an invite for your glory and for the joy of your people? In Jesus' name, amen.